You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's midnight in Wellington, 2000 in Tokyo, midday here in London and 3am in Anchorage. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... I want to build a proper government. We've got some serious issues in front of us. I'm not interested in the sideshow and the parlour games. I came here to get things sorted. New Zealand's new Prime Minister wants to hit the ground running, but can he? Gaza braces for still worse to come as confusion reigns over the Rafa border crossing. Japan's beleaguered Prime Minister faces grumpy voters in by-elections. And we'll have our obituary for the Finnish president and peacemaker, Marti Atasari, who has died aged 86. Atasari is an outstanding international mediator. The Norwegian Nobel Committee wishes to express the hope that others may be inspired by his efforts and his achievements. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Within the last couple of hours, both Israel and Hamas have denied reports of some sort of ceasefire in at least the south of the Gaza Strip, which might permit foreign nationals to leave via the Rafah crossing into Egypt and some aid to be delivered. In the meantime, conditions inside the Strip are deteriorating rapidly and inevitably ahead of an anticipated ground assault by Israel. Well, I'm joined now by the Palestinian journalist Abiy Ayoub, who has been monitoring events in Gaza from Istanbul. Um, Abiy, first of all, what's the latest you've been able to hear from directly inside Gaza? How desperate is it getting? Well, uh, people in Gaza are very sad and desperate to hear the news that uh, they thought before they slept yesterday that uh, the border will be open uh, yes, uh, to, today morning and that will they will be getting uh, humanitarian aids but all these news uh, turned to be not true when uh, Hamas and Israel uh, prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that they couldn't reach an agreement to open the Rafah border this is so disappointing for people they at least wanted just some time uh, to be calm, not to hear bombardment all the day, to get some water because they are running of water, to get some electricity uh, to charge their phones. But this didn't happen. And apparently it's not happening soon. So I would say that it's uh, it's very disappointing for everyone in, in the Gaza Strip. For those people in the north of the Gaza Strip, in, particularly, uh, in particular in and around Gaza City, uh, if we assume that Israel is going to invade the strip from the north and if we assume that the borders including Rafa are going to remain closed what options do people have if they do heed the advice to leave their homes where can they actually realistically go literally no options literally no options those who didn't leave don't have anyone in the south i know personally some people who left to the south but later went back to their homes in the gaza city because the situation in the south is catastrophic uh, more than 1 million palestinians cannot go to the south and to um, to be accurate the south is uh, is one of the poor areas of the gaza strip so you cannot push 
one million people to go to the south, um, very crowded shelters, no electricity, no water. Um, people are complaining that they like they don't have water to wash uh, their hands to go to the toilets. So uh, after people went to the south for one day or two, they went back to, to their homes, preferring to be, as they say, preferring to be kids in their homes and not to, to live these very critical humanitarian uh, circumstances in the south. I, it's, it's a long time since I've been to Gaza myself, but I, I do recall from that period that that Palestinian opinion is, of course, not monolithic. People have all sorts of views about all sorts of things. And while I'm sure that for people in Gaza now, their priority is just the basics of survival, do you think there's much anger towards Hamas as well for the the violence which has precipitated this response by Israel? I haven't seen this myself. I see people are supporting Hamas because it has been more than 15 years, more than 2 million Palestinians live under strict siege and Israeli violations on a daily basis against Israel, against Palestinians in Gaza. You are talking about freedom of movement being denied, uh, electricity, uh, blackout crisis, uh, water crisis. Uh, so um, people in Gaza are fed up with this very hard life uh, they they are you know they are living and they think that this battle hamas started will end up with them having better life uh, opening the borders uh, lifting the siege so i myself haven't seen any anger towards uh, hamas especially that in the last week Israel has been collectively punishing Palestinian in, Palestinians in Gaza. So uh, all the anger is going towards the Israeli occupation. Is there then any anger perhaps directed towards Egypt, which is, of course, the other country which keeps the Gaza Strip blocked in, and perhaps towards uh, other Arab countries which Palestinians may feel have not done enough to help either in the last week and a half or for the, the decades beforehand? Of course, of course, there is an anger towards uh, Arab uh, countries who seem to be helpless and not willing to do anything, not even to freeze the normalization agreements with Israel. This is disappointing, of course, for Palestinians in Gaza. But um, I think that uh, people in Gaza knew it, knew that no one would uh, stood by them because during the 15 years they were under siege, no real effort was made by Arab countries to, to help them. Uh, Abir Ayub in Istanbul following events in Gaza. Thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing. Here is Laura Kramer with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Poland's ruling law and justice party looks set to lose its majority in the country's Sunday general election. A group of liberal parties led by former European Council President Donald Tusk appears to have enough seats to form a coalition. Also voting on Sunday was Ecuador, where the center-right Daniel Naboa has won the race for the presidency. The young business heir secured 52% of the vote after a campaign dominated by a recent wave of organized drug crime and the country's struggling economy. And Taylor Swift's film about her latest concert tour has smashed box office records. The era's tour brought in almost $100 million since Friday, more than any other opening weekend for a North American concert movie. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thanks, Laurie. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It is not yet entirely clear who will be governing New Zealand following Saturday's general election, but it is entirely clear who won't be. The election was an unmistakable clobbering for the Labour Party led by Chris Hipkins, who succeeded Jacinda Ardern as Labour leader and Prime Minister nine months ago. Christopher Luxon, leader of the Conservative National Party, now awaits the count of votes cast outside New Zealand for an idea of who his coalition partners might end up being. Well, following developments is Thomas Coughlin, a deputy political editor of the New Zealand Herald. He joins us now from Wellington. Um, Thomas, first of all, it's always a question worth asking when an election changes the government. Uh, was this one a vote for the Nationals or against Labour? Um, to be honest, mainly, um, mainly against Labour. Uh, National during the campaign really struggled to sort of articulate a, a kind of um, a really strong vision for what they were for. Um, but Labour, Labour for two elections now um, was running on this sort of uh, COVID nineteen response. It, it won on that uh, on that resoundingly in twenty twenty, and even though it wasn't um, explicitly, I guess, actually running on the COVID nineteen response in twenty twenty three. It was sort of lurking in the background of everything, the sort of inflation crisis that we're dealing with, um, high crime uh, in urban centres post uh, lockdowns. Um, so so, um, so I should probably correct myself there. They weren't really running on it, but but it was sort of everywhere. And the electorate, uh, I think, um, sort of got sick really of of, um, of of the way that that was handled and and decided to look in the other direction. And, and that appears to have been what, what happened. And it wasn't just national that benefited from benefited from that. Uh, all the other parties in Parliament actually um, did quite well this election. Everyone apart from the Labour Party, um, and then so it wasn't just a vote against um, against for for national and against um, and against Labour. It was a vote for everyone else too. Hmm. Uh, well, it does mean, of course, that New Zealand's next Prime Minister will be Christopher Luxon, who only got elected to Parliament three years ago at the previous general election. Um, who basically is? How would you introduce him to uh, our international listeners? Um, he's he is a, a former chief executive. He used to run the national airline in New Zealand. Um, before that, he was a company um, a company chief executive, um, or the, the region of for Unilever in Canada. Um, and uh, but he was born in New Zealand. He's a New Zealander from the South Island. Um, I think um, he's often parodied domestically uh, for his management speak. He talks like a, a sort of um, you know McKinsey-style management consultant, a lot of buzzwords, um, and and that sort of thing. So that's sort of the, the kind of um, the, the caricature. Uh, he is um, religious. He's he's got quite uh, fundamental Christian beliefs, although he plays them down, doesn't talk about them in public. And and is quite keen to sort of suggest that they don't really influence um, the way he sees political life. Um, he got into trouble, I think, early on in his uh, in his political career uh, over remarks about abortion. Um, but he's been pretty well, very clear that, that that he doesn't want to actually do anything about abortion in government. So there's quite a sort of distinction between his, his private, personal um, religious beliefs and, and what he wants to do in public. Um, but I think yeah, the thing that most people take away from him is the fact that he is very corporate and, and, and likes to talk about that corporate experience quite a lot, which is, a, is something of a change from the Labour Party, which for the last two elections has been led by career politicians.
Well, he will, of course, be governing at the head of a conservative coalition of some description. But do we know yet just how conservative it is likely to be? Yeah, it's it's likely to be. Um, I, I mean, the sort of headline is that it's the most conservative government in recent history. Um, and and uh, if the, if you if you take one measurement of what conservative is. Um, which is, you know, the, the parties that are likely to comprise the government, then yes, it is. So National will be joined by the ACT Party, which is a sort of libertarian, um, a libertarian minor party, which which exists to the National Party's right. So ACT is socially liberal, uh, very socially liberal, um, doesn't really believe on in, in interfering too much with uh, the lives of, of people. Um, but they're economically very liberal as well, libertarian. Um, so, so sort of uh, low tax, low intervention, that sort of thing. So that's um, that's far to the right of national on that um, on that front. They're also joined, um, likely to be joined, um, although we don't know yet whether they, they will be needed or whether national will bring them into the tent anyway to create a large majority. Um, but but they're likely to be joined by the New Zealand First Party. Um, and you may remember this is the party that actually um, joined Labour in government in 2017. It was New Zealand First decision to go with Labour in 2017 that created the Ardern government. Uh, New Zealand First are uh, sort of um, populist, uh, quite right wing often on social issues, but they're difficult to pin down. Um, they, 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 their, their social beliefs tend to um, go in and out with the tides, I guess. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether whether um, whether they have whether National has to bring them into the fold as well. Uh, just finally, you mentioned earlier that this had been quite a good election for smaller parties, and one of those smaller parties which had a noticeable surge in support uh, was Te Pāti Māori, who, as the name suggests, uh, are very much oriented towards Indigenous concerns, and one might remark upon the irony of that result occurring uh, on the same day that Australians across the Tasman voted no uh, on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. What does that tell you about underlying trends in New Zealand politics? Is is there a greater consciousness on Indigenous issues developing? Um, perhaps. I think um, Te Pāti Māori did, I think, quite well because Māori voters deserted the Labour Party. Um, they performed very well in the seven Māori electorates. There are seven electorates that are reserved for people of Māori descent. You can only vote in them if you, if you are of Māori descent. Um, and and Labour Labour really struggled to perform in those electorates this time around. Uh, Labour tr- traditionally does very well in those electorates and and has in recent times actually won all of them, won, won a clean sweep. Um, this time around, I think um, there was Te Party Māori campaigned very hard in those electorates. There is a perception that Labour has um, had failed to deliver for for Māori voters, um, which Te Party Māori definitely played up on. Um, and um, and actually, in this election, um, Maori became something of a of a punching bag. Uh, they became uh, indigenous rights, indigenous sovereignty became a, a major election issue. Um, and there is a theory going around that um, that the more the parties of the right um, politicised Maori issues. Um, the more that that um, that Maori were actually used as a sort of a political punching bag, and um, the more that benefited to Party Maori, uh, who 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 sort of acted as a refuge for Maori voters who were frustrated at the way that the other parties were were using um, using ind- indigenous related issues to to score votes. Thomas Coughlin with the New Zealand Herald in Wellington. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the briefing on Monocle Radio.
You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Since becoming Prime Minister of Japan two years ago, Fumio Kishida has struggled to capture the imagination and or affection of his fellow citizens, and latest polling suggests that matters are not improving. His approval rating is limping at about 30%, and though he doesn't have to face voters nationally until 2025, his Liberal Democratic Party is about to be tested in two special elections, one for a seat in Japan's lower house, one for for a seat in the upper. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief. Um, Fiona, is there a, a simple way of explaining why the Prime Minister has struggled to make an impact? Short answer to that is no. There, <laughs> of course, there are very many uh, reasons why he's, his, his polling isn't great. I mean, I think you have to remember, you know, he's been in power since 2021, as you said. There's always going to be a bit of a a kind of stagnant point at this uh, this period. But I think when you look at the issues he's faced, uh, Ukraine, he did very well with that. He came out of the starting blocks, really supported Ukraine against Russia, did quite well. But since then, a lot of issues have been dragging him down, mostly domestic issues, I have to say. And I would have to say the biggest is the economy. Um, so there's been polling just you know, this week we've seen a whole lot of polls. And I think the biggest complaint is uh, the economy. People feel poorer inflation is higher, it's it's faster than wages, uh, the increase in wages, and people just feel poorer and they're not happy about that. I mean, as you suggest, though, he is a relatively new prime minister. His party has been in power now for quite a long time, more than a decade, in fact. Is there still an element as well of the Liberal Democratic Party generally still trying to find its way out of the considerable shadow cast by Shinzo Abe? Yeah, I think if you look at the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, I mean, this party has pretty much run Japan since the end of the war. So even though the polling is not great for him, you know, it was different results in different polls, but I saw one down at 32.3% support for his cabinet. Even though those polls are low, you still get people voting for him when it comes to a general election, which is always quite a strange (laughs) fact in Japan. The opposition is permanently in disarray. You just don't have a strong opposition in Japan at the moment. So There'll be complaints and there are plenty of complaints. People aren't happy about the unification church is another big issue, very domestic issue. He's tried to deal with that, hasn't quite you know, dealt with that properly. But still, when it comes to it, I think people will still vote. They might give a bit of a scare in these polls that we're seeing. But ultimately, there, there really isn't that much choice for, for many voters and, and they will still vote for Kishida and the LDP. I, I did want to ask about the question of the Unification Church, colloquially known as the Moonies. Uh, this has been a rumbling scandal in Japan, links between the Moonies and the LDP. What is the latest on that? Has there been any kind of resolution? Has he succeeded in in putting this issue to bed? Yeah, I mean, it's such a curious story. Um, The headquarters happens to be about three minutes from the Monocle office, so I do pass, often see NHK crews out there reporting. Um, The latest is that on Friday... The, the government has basically brought in the Tokyo court to dissolve the unification church and really put an end to the matter. I think a lot of people are not, uh, you know, that that action has had support, but a lot of people are not convinced that, that this will really sever Japan's links with the unification church. It's a curious rumbling issue, as you say, that's been going on. And it was behind the assassination of Shinzo Abe uh, that the person who did that, his, his family had been bankrupted, giving money to the unification church. And that's set off a whole sort of scandal about just how close the ruling party's links were with this church and how it was being used really to 
to, you know, as a sort of uh, volunteer electioneering uh, force for the LDP. So that's been very, very troublesome for him. Some things that you might have thought would be more of a problem, like releasing this water at Fukushima Daiichi, the polling this week is, uh, is you know, people are quite supportive. Most people, three quarters of the people who are polled, say they thought the action was appropriate. So that hasn't harmed him. I still think a lot of it just comes down to the economy. The inflation is too high. Wages are not keeping up. And, and, and food prices, that's where we're really noticing it in Japan. Food, food prices, which hadn't gone up in forever, are now really, really high, particularly for things like dairy products, eggs, seafood, big part of Jap Japan's diet, obviously. Those prices have gone up. And it, so it's really hitting people's pockets. And I think that's where the, uh, the discontent is being shown. So these approaching by-elections, how important to the Prime Minister are they? Is, is Japan one of those places like, for example, the United Kingdom, many other parliamentary democracies where by-elections are usually regarded uh, as a bit of an excuse for the public to give the governing party a bit of a kicking? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it would be. Um, yeah, definitely. I think there's, you know, it's it's a moment, as you say, he doesn't have to have an election, a general election until 2025. So he's got a bit of a room to recover if he does, if, you know, if the LDP doesn't um, get these seats. But I think you're right. It's a chance for the public to show they're fed up. And yeah, I think there's there's also a certain amount of discontent within the party. There are issues. Some people feel there's going to be this big stimulus package that's going to be announced soon about you know, basically supporting people who are suffering with these rising prices. They're going to give, be giving them money. Some people also feel there should be tax cuts. So how do you balance that? Within the party, there are two different sort of schools of thought. You can't give out all this money and give tax cuts. So somebody's not going to be happy. So that's that's one big issue. There's also an issue with Cometo, which is the, the LDP's uh, coalition partner. They're frequently out of step on issues, um, particularly around defence. So that's a slightly fractious relationship. So, yeah, I think, as you say, these by-elections are a chance to air these issues he doesn't particularly have to worry because the general election he can hold off. But what is interesting is the presidency of the LDP, who is in turn prime minister, that's coming up a bit sooner. That's next year. So he'll really he wants to be in a pole position there. And I think he felt he'd done quite a good job with this reshuffle that happened a few weeks ago. And it had absolutely no impact on his polling. You know, he changed the defence minister, brought in a woman as foreign minister, first woman foreign minister since 2004. That's Yoko Kamikawa. I think he thought that would go down well with the public. And it's it's had absolutely no impact whatsoever. Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Marty Atasari, President of Finland from 1994 to 2000 and recipient of the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize, has died at the age of 86. Here is Monocle Radio's obituary. You have to be able to listen so that we can find a common ground that makes it possible for everyone to feel at home and not stranger in the society we are trying to create. The list of internationally famous Finns is a short one and disproportionately populated by racing drivers. Racing drivers, especially Finnish racing drivers, are renowned for the steel nerves and cold blood necessary to calculate extremes of risk and reward in circumstances where getting it wrong could have calamitous consequences. The same qualities, as Marty Artisari understood, are often demanded of the peacemaking diplomat. 
For most people who become their nation's leader, that's the first line of their obituary. Atasari belongs to that exclusive echelon who became a head of state and then went on to better things. He was a perfectly serviceable president of Finland from 1994 to 2000, but his name was made by his prior and subsequent efforts as an arbitrator and mediator in wars, squabbles and disputes around the world. In 2008, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. The citation noted his important efforts on several continents and over more than three decades to resolve international conflicts. Today, Ahtisari is an outstanding international mediator. The Norwegian Nobel Committee wishes to express the hope that others may be inspired by his efforts and his achievements. Mati Atasari was born on June 23, 1937, in Vipuri. That very fact may have endowed him with first-hand understanding of the upheaval war can create. Vipuri was captured by the Red Army during the Winter War of 1939-1940 between Finland and the Soviet Union. Finland retook it in 1941, but the Soviets recovered it in 1944. It has ever since been the Russian town of Vyborg. Artisari described himself as an eternally displaced person. Atasari spent his childhood further north in Kuopio and then much further north in Oulu. After completing his national service, he set himself on a career as a schoolteacher. But in the early 1960s, a stint working on a Swedish educational project in Karachi gave Atisari an expanded idea of his possible horizons. On returning to Finland, he joined the Department for International Development Cooperation at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1973, he was dispatched to Dar es Salaam to be Finland's ambassador to Tanzania, also assuming responsibility for whatever Finnish interests were to be found in Mozambique, Somalia and Zambia. Possibly because there were no Finnish interests to be found in Tanzania, Mozambique, Somalia and Zambia, Atasari was able to establish a formidable local network, which backed him to become the United Nations Commissioner for Namibia. Artisari estimated his role in helping Namibia towards its eventual independence from South Africa in 1990 as his most important achievement. The grateful new country made him an honorary citizen. Back in Finland in the early 1990s, Artisari continued his upward progress through the foreign ministry's hierarchy, becoming its senior-most civil servant, while also overseeing the UN's faltering early efforts to stop Yugoslavia tearing itself to pieces. He became a popular figure in and around Finnish politics at a recession-struck time when popular figures in and around Finnish politics were thin on the ground. The Social Democratic Party drafted him to be its candidate in the 1994 presidential election, the first in which Finns voted directly for their head of state. Artisari won handily in the second round. Even while serving as president, Atisari remained the freelance diplomat. In 1999, he led efforts to end the war over Kosovo, negotiating directly with Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic in tones of characteristically Finnish plain speaking. When Milosevic quibbled at NATO's final ultimatum, Atisari told him bluntly, this is the best you can get, it's only going to get worse for you. 
After leaving politics, Artisari brought the same no-nonsense outlook to bear on conflicts in places as various as Aceh, Iraq, the Balkans, the Horn of Africa and Northern Ireland. He founded the Crisis Management Initiative, an NGO which promoted dialogue and mediation. His views on conflict resolution continued to be sought. Finns have a word which describes their distinctive national mindset, Sisu. It's not easy to translate precisely, but it describes a sort of utilitarian pragmatism. Say what needs saying, and very often no more than that, do what needs doing as thoroughly as you can do it, and don't make a fuss, on the grounds that fuss rarely helps. Sisu is a creed generally, by definition, practiced rather than preached, and Marty Artasari applied it to diplomacy as doggedly and dauntlessly as Mika Hakkinen or Kimi Raikkonen applied it to the racetrack. Even if building workable solutions is difficult, Artisari once wrote, it is no excuse not to try. What I am feeling now can only be compared with the joy I have felt when seeing the changes that peace has brought to the lives of the people. When people who have endured wars and crises begin to build their lives in an atmosphere of peace. When faith in the future returns. Our obituary for the late Finnish president and Nobel Peace Laureate Marti Atasari, who has died at the age of 86. Finally, on today's show, the results are in from Alaska's Katmai National Park and Preserve, which every October marks Fat Bear Week. The online competition pits the park's brown bears against each other as they beef up ahead of winter hibernation. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs reports on this year's winner and reflects on his own interaction with Alaskan bears. A bear who goes by 128 Grazer, a mother, a female bear, only the third female to win Fat Bear Week competition. And she won amidst a record shattering nearly 1.4 million people who voted for the bears. The beauty of Fat Bear Week is that you can watch your preferred contestant 24 seven via a live stream at explore.org and these webcams see quite a bit of traffic during Fat Bear Week. And so you can pick your bear, not only based on how they look, but how they behave out in the wild. You're watching these bears at strategic places throughout Katmai National Park, where the salmon runs are abundant and they can grab as many sockeye as they can get a hold of and stuff themselves silly. And 128 Grazer seemed to rise to the forefront for a couple of reasons. She is a mother bear, but one that doesn't have a mate. So a, a single mom, if you will. And she was very effectively protecting her cubs and making sure that they got the salmon they needed as well amidst a, a sort of friendly competition. So there's lots of bears congregating in the same place and you know they might be going after the same salmon, for example, or trying to, to carve out their own little patch of the river to you know fend off some of their fellow bears from you know getting a prime fishing spot. So although 128 Grazer may not have been the biggest of the bears, certainly her maternal instincts really made her popular with the voters. If lots of visitors came to Katmai National Park, which is a beautiful place, but it is rugged, it is remote, and it is fragile, 
they would overwhelm the resource. I mean, there are platforms where you can view these bears. You, you can only get there, first of all, by a float plane from an airport that itself is only served by small prop planes. I mean, this is just no cruise ships are going here. This is not an easy destination to get to. In fact, it's the sixth least visited U.S. National Park. I think only about 25,000 visitors came through last year. So this pristine natural environment thrives precisely because there aren't hordes of tourists flocking to it. And so Fat Bear Week is an opportunity for the Park Service to show this pristine natural environment to a global audience without suffering from some of the over-tourism effects that might you know, otherwise damage this, this resource. I was reporting a few years ago from Kaktovik, which is above the Arctic Circle, so it's as far north as you can go in Alaska. And I was actually there precisely because of bears. So Kaktovik is a small village in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which has been something of a controversial site because there are these periodic proposals to, to drill for oil there, and then environmental groups are staunchly opposed to this. And there's, there's a particular village where uh, polar bears are part of the ecosystem there, but they've been encroaching on the village because there's less and less sea ice. So they are instead coming into town and foraging in the garbage bins and the like, and polar bears will kill you. I mean, polar bears, they are not cute and cuddly. They are terrifying animals. And so at our lodging, the rules were very clear. Before you stepped out of any building, you had to have a can of bear spray in hand. And just as you were crossing the road, when you opened the door, you had to look left and look right before you stepped outside to make sure there was not a polar bear lurking just outside the, the doorway. Now, fortunately, I did not cross paths with any polar bears in Kaktovik right outside the door. They do also, I should say, they have a polar bear patrol. So villagers actually drive around on ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, and periodically sort of scare the bears away back out into the wilderness. Um, but we did go on a polar bear safari with a local guide who is lamenting the fact that the bears are so close to town because this is an effect of climate change that they're quite worried about. But we were able from a safe distance to see these majestic creatures. They do look cute and cuddly, but we were warned over and over again, they are extremely dangerous and they will kill you. That was Gregory Scruggs, and that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time, midday London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>